today comes from chapter 21 of the book of Matthew, verses 23 to 46. We're continuing our journey through the gospel according to Matthew. So uh, please open up your Bibles or follow along with me on the screen. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said to the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, The first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. But John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, uh, what will he do to those tenants? They said to them, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they had, a, because they had held him to be a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. All right. So now would you um, give a warm welcome as Pastor David comes up to the front to preach the word of God from the book of Matthew. Thanks, Pastor David. Good morning, guys. 
I start to bump stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, will you guys join me uh, as I pray before we uh, before we hear from God in His Word? Our Father, um, I just I just want to say thank you, uh, thank you um, for uh, yeah, even just the time of worship that we've just had, uh, where we can come together as your people, as your temple, to actually meet with you to meet with you in prayer and in praise and in worship, uh, to be reminded of the forgiveness of our sins in Christ. So we just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for the gospel. Amen. I am not much of a sports person. I've never really been much of a sports person. I've been pretty unco my whole life. <laughs> um, yeah, let me laugh it up, guys. Uh, actually, so I didn't know how to ride a bicycle until very recently. Um, and then when I learned how to ride a bicycle, I, I got really into it. So that's kind of my, my sport now, cycling. Um, but even if you're not a fan of cycling, chances are you've heard uh, at least once or twice of a guy called Lance Armstrong, right? Lance Armstrong. He's a former professional cyclist uh, who had testicular cancer, and he bounced back from testicular cancer uh, to win the Tour de France seven times in a row, uh, which is a crazy achievement. It's like 21 days, uh, 4,000 kilometers of you know, bicycle racing. It's almost inhuman to, to win it once, but to win it seven times, that's just remarkable. Um, after he won the Tour de France seven times, a few he actually retired. Right? He retired, but a few years later, he put out a press release saying, "I'm going to make a comeback. I'm going to try and win an eight unprecedented Tour de France." Um, and because of his decision to kind of stage a comeback, there was a lot of exposure that came along with that. And uh, if you guys know this, uh, if you don't, that's fine. What actually ended up happening was he was stripped of all seven of his titles because he was found to have uh, doped, to have used performance-enhancing drugs uh, during the course of his career, and he was stripped of all seven of his titles. And some journalists at the time, it was a huge uproar. Like this guy was, he did so much for you know the cancer community, uh, for the cycling community. Um, he was so inspirational. But he was found to be a doper, and, and some journalists were saying that if he, if Lance had just stayed retired, right, if he had just kind of stayed in his spot after winning seven titles, he probably wouldn't have drawn attention to himself in the same way, and maybe he still would have those seven titles. But he couldn't do that. Why is that the case? Uh, I think it's because there's something about power and authority that is inherently addictive. Uh, you don't just see it in people like Armstrong. You see it in politicians or, or leaders of institutions all the time. You know, guys who are well past the age of retirement, but they just refuse to step down. You guys know what I'm talking about. Um, you see it in the workplace, right? And, and people who have worked their way up to where they're at. And they don't want to let anything, not even a little smidgen of power, uh, slip away. You even see it in young children. Right, who don't want to give up the right to play with 
that toy or the device that they have in their hands. All right, these are glimpses of the addictive nature of power and authority. But once you've got it, it's so hard to let it go. It's a central kind of observation of the human condition. And in Jesus' day, the religious leaders that we just read about, they had great power, they had great authority, not just religious authority like we think of it these days, like you know, pastors who, who lead churches, but they had political authority too. They were the leaders of their people uh, because they didn't have that same kind of church-state separation at the time. And if you remember what's happened in this scene, Jesus has just walked into their temple, into their holy place. He's cleansed it. He's cracked the whip. He's flipped tables. He's driven out the marketplace sellers, and he's brought in the needy people and the sick people. And what he's done essentially by doing that is he's challenged their grip on power and authority. And they don't like it. They really don't like it. So they ask him this question, who do you think you are? By what authority are you doing these things? And you know, we look at this interaction, and I think the tendency that we have is we will just completely remove, our, remove ourselves from this picture. You know, they're the Pharisees, they're the religious leaders, they're the Lance Armstrongs. You know, we're nothing like them. But the reality is all of us hold power and authority over something. We all have something that we find really hard to let go of. And it's a problem because when we come before Jesus, we don't just come before him as a teacher or as a friend or as a helper, but as king, as the Lord. And we're to surrender everything to him, all of our power. See, the world wants riches. The world wants the riches of the kingdom without the king. But Christianity says the kingdom can only be fully experienced under the king. This passage that uh, we just read today, it's about a clash of authorities. On the surface of it, it's a clash of authorities between uh, the religious leaders of the time and and Jesus. But uh, I actually want us to not be so distant from it, but to see ourselves in this, to place ourselves in this. And I want us to be challenged today, to have our grip on the power and the authority that we wield, to be challenged and even shaken before Jesus, the King so that we can find rest in the good authority of this king. So Jesus uses two parables, which we'll look uh, at today, to answer the Pharisees' question, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So, okay. So the first parable, is the parable of the two sons. Okay? The parable of the two sons. Jesus tells a parable about a father who uh, gives the same command to his sons. Go and work in my vineyard. Uh, and it's fairly obvious here that the, the, the father represents God. The first son uh, says no. Then he changes his mind and he actually ends up obeying. The second son says yes, but he never actually obeys. And so Jesus asks the religious leaders this question in verse 31. Which of the two uh, did the will of his father? And the religious leaders answer correctly. They say the first son, the the guy who said no initially, but he actually changed his mind and he went and he obeyed. 
And here Jesus compares this first son to the tax collectors and, and the prostitutes of the time. You know, these downtrodden outcasts who have been living lives that are rebellious and sinful, but ultimately they come to believe in John's message of repentance and they're invited into the kingdom and they repent and they have faith in Jesus. And he compares the second son to the religious leader standing before him. These guys had the outward appearance of repentance, but it didn't lead to obedience. And here's what's really interesting. I don't know if you noticed this. The religious leaders, by their answer, they know what true repentance actually looks like. Right? True repentance looks like not just saying the right stuff, but actually obeying, following through. They know what it looks like. They just refuse to do it. And instead, they're comfortable with saying yes with their mouths while their lives say no. They see the hypocrisy of the second son in the parable, but they don't see it in themselves. And the question is, do we see that in ourselves? Do we see the hypocrisy of a mouth that says yes to God while while our lives actually say no to God? The second parable uh, is the parable of the tenants. And in this parable, uh, there's a master, and the master symbolizes God the Father. Uh, He came looking for fruit from his vineyard. Uh, There are tenant farmers living on this vineyard, so he sends his servants to get fruit. Uh, But the tenants, they actually end up beating up and killing and even stoning the servants that the master has sent. Uh, And I just want to point out briefly here, can you see the patience of God, the master in this parable? Right? Servants have been beaten, killed, and stoned. And then the master decides to send his son. And he does that because he thinks that they're showing respect. But this time they seize the son and they kill him, thinking that this will allow them to get the son's inheritance. How does that work? We're going to come back to that in a second. But what you have to know about this parable is this parable is like a mini salvation summary. The master of the vineyard is God. The tenants are Israel's leaders throughout history. Uh, And the servants are the Old Testament prophets, the ones that God has been sending repeatedly to his people to instruct them to repent, to bear that fruit of repentance. And the beatings and the killings represent the ways that these prophets were persecuted by their own people. And the Son is the Son of God, Jesus. And the killing of the Son is the cross. Mini salvation history. And the story is simply and sadly that God so deeply loved the world that he chose Israel from among all the nations to bless all nations. He rescued them out of Egypt. He nurtured them back to health. And he gave them the law. He established a city through them and a temple. But over time, his people turned away from God. And so he sent prophets repeatedly to warn them that they would reject and persecute these prophets. So he sends more, and the same thing happens. Finally, he so loved his people that he sends his own son, Jesus. And Israel's leaders, they plot, they arrest, and they kill the son of God. 
And just like the first parable, Jesus ends this parable by asking the Pharisees a question in verse 40. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And once again, they, they have the right answer. They reply, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him, give him the fruits in their seasons. I almost kind of picture them like smugly standing there, like knowing the answer. Like, obviously, Jesus, it's, that's so wrong, right, for them to do that, for them to not only kill the servants that the master sent, but kill the, the master's son, and they're going to get what's coming to them. But once again, they just don't see it for themselves. They don't see that they could possibly be the ones in the place of these tenants, rejecting the authority of the Son of God who's standing before them. And they've answered rightly that this will lead to a miserable death. But they don't see it for themselves. Jesus replies to them by saying, Have you ever read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. See, the stone uh, either stays in place, it's a figurative stone of a building. This stone, which is the cornerstone, it's, it stays in place, and, and you build your whole life upon that cornerstone, which is Jesus, or it becomes a stone that is pushed out of place, and it becomes a stumbling stone that rolls over and eventually crushes you. And finally, finally the, the religious leaders, they finally get it in verse 45. That's what it says. It's like their eyes are open. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. It's a light bulb moment. And how do they respond? It says they try to arrest him, but they don't because they're afraid of how the crowds around Jesus would respond. And here's where I want to turn the tables on us. Who do you see yourself in these parables? When Jesus speaks of these parables, do we just hear them as stories that kind of cover our heads? Do we see ourselves in these parables? Because there is no such thing as neutrality with Jesus. Here's why. He claims to have not just a little bit of authority. He claims to have all authority over all things as the Son of God. That's how this gospel ends in Matthew chapter 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's what he claims. And that means he has authority over you. Whether you want to give it to him or not, he's Lord. It doesn't change the fact that he's Lord. So there's no neutrality before him. You're someone who either accepts Jesus or you're someone who rejects him. There's no middle ground. And it's a very sober question to ask ourselves. Who are we 
in these parables. And here's the application for us. As you think about that question. I hope that you're not like the tenants. In the parable of the tenants. But I understand if you are. Because the cry of the natural human heart uh, is to reject the authority of God. It's to say, I know better than God for you know, what's good for my life. And I'll, I'll actually rule better than his son. And even I want to be the God of my own life. You know, this parable is so interesting, right? Because they think that if they kill the son, they'll be able to inherit his property. It makes no sense. I was thinking about this, and I, I don't know if you guys know the phenomenon of squatters. You guys know what squatters are? The people who occupy and settle down in a house or a building that does not belong to them. But they think it does. They think they have an absolute right to it. And that's what these tenants are doing. They're squatters. They kill the master's son and they squat down in the building that is their life. The squatter's rights. And it leads to a miserable death. And I think some of us must be sobered by that reality. Don't be like the tenants. But secondly, don't be like the second son uh, in the the first parable. The one who says yes to obeying the father, but uh, doesn't actually obey. It's It's one thing to say yes to God with your mouth. It's another thing to actually obey God and to turn away from the things that are causing disobedience to God. Uh, it kind of touches on what we looked at last week in terms of this idea of hypocrisy of being like a fig tree that is very leafy on the outside, but it's not actually bearing any fruit. That's what the second son was like too. Instead, be like the first son. And if you are Christian, then you're the first son. All of us who are Christians would have to identify with this first son, the one who said no, but then changed his mind and obeyed. None of us have a perfect history. All of us at one point were in rebellion to God or maybe still in rebellion to God. And we can be like the first son. That's exactly what the tax collectors and the prostitutes were like. And it's interesting because when you consider the tax collectors and the prostitutes, like I, I just imagine them back in this time. They're just living their life, you know. Tax collectors are ripping off you know, their own people, and the prostitutes are selling themselves. And they hear this guy, John the Baptist, come along. They hear him call people to repentance, to repent of their sins. The king is coming. You know, that night, the tax collector 
I just imagined him putting his head down on the pillow, perhaps saying something like, I've got to do something about my sin because this guilt, it's just killing me. For the prostitute who has no illusions about her integrity and purity, saying, is it possible that someone could make me clean? So the next day, the tax collector and the prostitute, they go up to the river and they're baptized in their repentance. They obey. See, repentance that goes with obedience, not just with words, that is the fruit of the Christian life. It's what we see in the first son. It's what we see in the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And that's what we see in the life of a genuine Christian. And all of this is possible because of God's son. See, the son of the master of the vineyard has all the authority of the master. Don't, don't miss that. When the master finally sends his son, he's sending him with all of his authority. Jesus has all the authority of God. But just like in this parable, he lays aside the benefits of his authority. How does he do that? Well, he becomes constrained to a human body. God becomes like us. And then he actually dies for sinful people so that they would repent and put their faith in him and be saved. And, you know, we look at guys like Lance Armstrong and you know, what they do is it's a bad example of, you know, holding onto your authority. I'm sure we can think of better examples of people who, uh, you know, who are humble in their leadership, who are not so close-fisted uh, with their authority. But the, the reality is we'll never, we'll never see someone like Jesus, someone who had all authority and yet humbled himself to give up all authority. It's absolute authority with absolute humility. Isn't this the king that you want to live under? There's no other king like him. There's no other king who has absolute power and authority, yet is willing to give it all up for the sake of his people. When you put yourself under the rule of this king, life makes sense. When you put yourself under any other authority, Life is not complete. Whether it's living for something, maybe it's your career, or living for a person, or just living for yourself, being the captain of your own ship. No one but Jesus is able to be completely humble, be completely authoritative. Everyone else is too close-fisted is too addicted to power and authority. He is you know, the beautiful Savior that we've been singing about. He is the most benevolent and kind and yet powerful and authoritative king that we could ever know, that we could ever serve. And today he's calling us in his kindness to repentance. And I don't know what that means for you, 
think all of us have something that we can repent from and towards Jesus in obedience. Um, and I just ask you to consider what that is and to trust in this king, to trust in the son. It's okay if you're like the first son. You can change your mind. You can repent. Come to Jesus. Trust in the son. Father, I just thank you that the gospel is a message for sinners. I thank you that even though we are sinful and sometimes we just stay in our sin and our disobedience towards you, um, you remind us like this uh, that we can come and repent and obey and trust in you, knowing that our sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And Lord, I, I just pray that that wonderful cleansing flow of the blood of Jesus would cover all of us today, that we would know again what it means to be forgiven, that we'd be able to look past the depths of our sin and see the beauty of this King, and even then help us, God, to actually not just say the words, but to obey. That our lives would make sense in the King. In his name we pray.